I, I love to hear other people pray and not just myself. I, you know, I was, as she started praying, I started thinking back at a time, this was a long time ago, I was on a search committee at a church um, in town years ago, and there were um, seven of us, seven men and women, five men, two women, and uh, we, were, we were all very different. We, weren't, we became very close friends from that um, experience, but we weren't when we started. But um, we prayed diligently every single time we met. We always opened in prayer, and we always, all seven of us, prayed. There was never anyone that didn't pray or say, I don't feel like praying uh, this time that we meet. And it was, it was so humbling to hear everybody pray. Every, every one of those seven people brought something different to the table each and every week. And it was just amazing to me. It was humbling to me where I was in my walk at the time to um, think, well, I, I can cover this. I can cover as, every aspect of this, this prayer here. And then all these other six people would pray, and I think, wow, I missed six different areas that needed praying for that I wasn't thinking about. So um, if you get that opportunity to pray in a group like that, it's really, really an, an, an awesome experience. So, and I would like to do that more this semester is call on different people to pray. So if that's something you are not afraid to do, let me know. I may come and ask you, and you are always welcome to say no. I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable doing that, or today's not a good day for me. So, but anyway, thank you, Diane. I appreciate that very much. Okay, we are in the great chapter of Genesis 17. I hope you all are having fun with this first lesson. I, I am loving this study. I think it's so much fun. So we are, with, we are with Abram at a particular point in his life. And so let, let's just begin to unpack it and look. You know, the first question I'm always going to ask you every week in your homework, we won't necessarily discuss it every week in here, but that is what are the key repeated words and or key repeated phrases you kept seeing come up in this particular chapter of the scriptures? Because those key words are, are pointing you to something. You, you can, if you do this exercise and then you just write them down like that, even no matter how much you've studied it, you can just step back and look at all that and say, I can tell you what this chapter is about just based on those few words or those phrases that I wrote down. What did you all come up with? What, what kept getting repeated? What was significant in this chapter? Circumcision, Circumcision okay. <laughs> a man would say that. <laughs> Circumcision. What else? Covenant. What kind of covenant? Did you notice? It was everlasting, but did you notice something else that kept getting repeated in reference to the covenant? My covenant. My covenant. This is God's covenant that he keeps repeating, I think, like nine times, he says. My covenant. My covenant. My covenant. Okay, what else? A lot of I will and I said. Exactly. Now, Jim, I have a question for you because I know this came up when we did the covenant study. In the Hebrew, the I will isn't in there, is it? Is it in? Or is that more implied? Okay. Okay, okay. So the implication is definitely there. We'd be correct to go ahead and camp on that a little bit. Okay, good. I didn't want to say something and then you jump in and say, no, it's not there. 
So yes, I will. This is what I will do over and over, and we'll talk about what he says he will do. Anything else? Yes, this covenant, there's that phrase between me and you. My covenant between me and you and your offspring. Did you notice that phrase? After you. That stood out to me and I started marking it. After you. It's in there. Everlasting. We said that. What else? Anything else? Offspring. Yes? I am God Almighty. Used one time, isn't it? Well, we're going to talk about that because he reveals himself here. That is El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai, and that is, that is a huge revelation. It's the first time he reveals himself as that, and we will talk about that. Okay, another word used one time, but it's huge. What? Bless. That's used more than once, but bless is in there. I will bless. I will bless. But there's a word in relation to this covenant used one time, four letters. It's a four-letter word, but it's not a bad word. Starts with an S. Again, not a bad word. <laughs> what? No, no, no. It's only used one time in relation to circumcision and the covenant. What is circumcision? It's a sign. It's a sign. Here's a perfect example of a word that's used only one time. It is not repeated, but it is huge. If I take that word out of this text, I've taken away a good chunk of the meaning of what, what the Lord is trying to tell us here. It is a sign. Circumcision is a sign of my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Okay? Did you all mark it? If you didn't, you should put, highlight it. Put something big around it. We're going to talk about that as well. Okay. This, it's helpful, especially since we're not studying Genesis, to kind of see where we are in the context here so that we understand what's happening in this chapter. Remember last year, last week, I put the, the whole timeline up, and we're going to have part of the timeline up because at the beginning of Genesis, we have creation. God created in the beginning. In the beginning, it's God. And I love that line in the beginning of this, this lesson. It's about him. It's not about us. It's his story. Remember I said that last week, that everything in Scripture is God's redemptive story. It's about him. It's about his glory. We get to be a small part of it. What happened right after creation? Very soon after creation, in the garden with Adam and Eve, we had the fall, didn't we? Adam and Eve make a fateful, a, 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 a horrible choice, and it sets in motion a, a curse that is, is still upon mankind to this day, but yet God then intervenes. In fact, he does in Genesis 3.15, the pro-evangelon, when he says to them, um, how, oh, someone help me, I don't have it memorized. I will bru you will bruise his head. He will bruise your heel and I will crush his head. It's, it's, it is a glimpse of the fact that of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And God is already saying, I'm providing redemption for you. And then from this point on, I am progressively, that's something you, to remember, and you might want to write down. In all of this, it's also, especially in the Old Testament, not so much in the New, his progressive revelation 
of his redemptive story. Because what we'll see and we'll repeat is Abram's just getting bits and pieces here and there. He's not getting every, we have everything. We have the whole completed story. He did not have everything. So we have the fall. The curse comes upon man. Um, Adam and Eve do go and are fruitful and multiply and begin to um, produce inhabitants upon the earth. What happens next? You all know? The earth becomes very wicked. So much so that God decides he's going to do what? He's going to destroy it. So, in the days of Noah, he sends a flood. He saved Noah and his household, but he sends a flood, floods the whole earth, destroys it, makes a covenant, establishes a covenant with Noah, and through Noah and his descendants now he will repopulate the earth. Now, after that, as they begin to spread and pop, as they begin to populate, uh, a less familiar story probably to us, but one that we know well as children, is the Tower of Babel. Do you remember Tower of Babel? And they build this big tower, and they're all of one language, and they're doing exactly what God said not to do, and he confuses their language so as to make them split up and go out and populate the different areas of, of the earth that he had commanded them to do. So here's what has happened before Abraham comes on the scene. Now, I'm looking at your number two in your homework, so we're getting some understanding of this particular passage, what has happened that has brought Abram and God to this point in Genesis 17. And in Genesis 12, what happens? This is the first time, actually at the end of 11, that we see Abram mentioned right? And then what happens at the end of 11 in the first of 12 in those first three verses? God told him to go, didn't he? Told him to go. Where, where was he? Okay, Abram and his family were originally from Ur of the Chaldees, which I believe, if I've got my geography right, was somewhere back up in Turkey. Um, he and his dad and family had left Ur and gone as far as Haran. Uh, it says that they were going to go to the land of Canaan, but they stopped in Haran and they stayed there. And Terah dies. His father dies. And that's when God speaks to Abram and says, I want you to go to this land, right? So what, what else is he telling here? Go to the land, I'll show you. What else is he telling? Okay, that the in you all the families of the world will be blessed. That's huge, isn't it? What, Patty? Okay, you'll be a great nation. All families blessed. Okay, the go to the land is pretty reasonable. What is ironic about, I will make you a great nation, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed? They don't have any children. The he and Sarah are barren. How old is he? No, no, no. It tells, actually, I should have given you the next verse. I should have given you um, Genesis 12. I think it's in 12.4. But... This is a bit of trivia you should just know. How's that? 
He is 75. He is 75 years old, and even though they lived longer back then, it is still old. And he and Sarai are barren. They have been able, unable to have children. So can you imagine what he's thinking when God says this? And yet, what does he do? What does he do? He goes, doesn't he? He takes off and he does go. And he's going where he doesn't really know where he's going other than I'm, I'm going into the land of Canaan. I'm going to go take you to a land I'm going to show you. Just go. So you see Abraham obey, Abram obey, and he does, he does go. So time passes, and we don't, I don't think we know exactly how much time passes. I wasn't able to, to rabbit chase that down and come up with a number. But time passes. And in Genesis 15, you looked at this. What, what happened? In Genesis 15. This is where the covenant is cut between Abram and, well, that God cuts a covenant with Abram. But what starts this whole conversation? Some time has passed. He's been promised a great nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And yet, what's Abram's state here? What's his condition, he and Sarai? They are still childless. There's still, no, there's still no heir, and he proposes a solution. What was the solution that he proposes? No, no. Let's go there. Let's go to Genesis 15. This is a pivotal chapter as well. I mean, we could have easily done 15 over 17. But by doing 17, we get 15. Let's just look at it. No, we're not at Ishmael yet. Let's go to 15. Let's go to 15. Let's just read. Yes, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. Now, if you're wondering what things, after what things, this is right after he had rescued Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah and had also defeated, you know, defeated all those kings, rescued him, and he'd also, those of y'all that did, Hebrews last semester had had the encounter with, with Melchizedek, the priest king. So he says, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my, my household will be my heir. Now, that was not unusual. That was a, a common practice. You don't have an heir, so you just basically um, adopt someone uh, as your legal heir. And so it wouldn't have been an uncommon practice. This was, it may sound weird to us. It was not weird to him. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. I'd underline that. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, then God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And how does God respond right there? What does he tell him to do? Mm -hmm. 
bring me these animals. Bring me this, this, this heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon and cut them in two and lay them in halves. Now, that's weird to me. If I ask, how shall I know that I will possess it? And you say, go get me these animals, cut them in half, lay them side by side. I think, what? Huh? But Abram doesn't question it. He doesn't do it. He doesn't question it because he knows what this means. What does it mean? What's happening here? He lays them side by side. Look what happens. The sun was going, look in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's important for next week's lesson when we get to Exodus 32, by the way. Hint, hint. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now note, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire and flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give you this land. What is happening when, when that smoking um, the flame and the, and the torch go between those pieces of the animal. What's happening there? Abram understood this. We don't understand it. Well, God is the one passing through in the form of the smoking fire pot, pot and the flaming torch. It is, rep, it, is, it is God passing between these pieces. Abraham's asleep. He is not passing between them. What symbolically is going on here? Not even symbolically. What is going on here? Who knows? It's what? It's, it's, the, ratif- it's the cutting of the covenant. Literally. To, to make a covenant literally means to cut a covenant. The cutting of the animals. And what he is saying, do you all know what, what is being signified here? Somebody who did covenant. What's being signified? When, he wa- when someone walks between the pieces of those animals, what is that communicating? It's unbreakable. It's forever. What else? With himself. It was all on him. I have made, first of all, what it's saying is, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. I mean, it is binding. That's, it's a serious, it is solemn, it is binding when he does this. And, and that's a good point. He is the one making the covenant himself. And essentially what he is saying is, I have made these promises and I will bring them to fruition. And, and you know what else he's ultimately saying, those of you all that did covenant, and, and I will send my son, I, I will, because I'm not going to break it, and it's all on me, eventually my son will die to fulfill this covenant. There will be a death, and it will be my son. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that brings us to Genesis 17, but I gave you one little text to look at in Joshua. Um, I don't remember where in Joshua. I gave you a text in Joshua because I wanted you to see something about Abram. What did you see in that text? 
When Joshua was talking about their forefathers, the promises made to Abram and his offspring, what did you learn? Patriarchs worshipped. Who had Abram worshipped? Idols. Idols. I think sometimes we miss those little references that how huge this was. Abram was a, they were idol worshippers. And yet he, he, God appears to him and he's for some reason in the midst of all those idols, he decides, he listens and he hears and he says, this Lord God, I think I ought to listen to and believe in. Because in Genesis 15, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed Yahweh. He believed this God. I think sometimes what we lose sight of and forget, and it's sprinkled everywhere among these patriarchs, that they never, a lot of them, most of them never really completely gave up their idols over here. Israel never did. You never really see them giving up their idols. They're always kind of over here on the side. Does that make sense? Are y'all following me? Okay. So we come to Genesis 17, and what does God say he will do in Genesis 17? Because in 15, we have God make the covenant. God ratifies the covenant. He ratifies, what I want you to see is he ratifies the covenant, prom, covenant of these promises he had made by cutting the covenant with the animals and walking between the pieces. So now we come to Genesis 17. We do know how old he is in Genesis 17. If you do the math, how old is Ishmael? He's 13. He's 13... So, here's how we do the math. Abram's how old? No, here, in in Genesis 17. Pay attention. This is something to do. Pay attention to those time phrases. You know, when it says observation tips, pay attention to those things that say, which you did, everlasting, forever. But pay attention to, Abram was 99 years old. Ishmael was um, 13, this time next year I will give you, so he's 99, this time next year I will give you Isaac, so he'll be 100 when Isaac is born. So Ishmael is 13, Abram is 99, how old was um, Abram when he had Ishmael? We're in what, third grade math? He was what? 86. 99 minus 13 is 86. Right? So in Genesis 16 is when he and Sarah plot the plan. We still don't have a child. So somewhere in here we've gone from 75 to 86, so about 11 years, still no, still no child, and yet we know God has said, one from your own body will come forth. Not Eliezer, so we know it wasn't that. One from your own body will come forth. We didn't study, we didn't even read Genesis 16, but you all know the story, right? What plan do they come up with? 
They're handmade. We'll use the handmade, which was a common cultural practice as well. Nothing unusual about that either. So makes sense. God said this. This must, this must be the way. So we will use Hagar, and we will have Ishmael. He's 86. They have Ishmael, and everything's just fine, right? Well, we have the little incident with, with Hagar. But as far as Abram's concerned, I have this blessed son. I have this promised son. Yes, Tony. I don't know. Jim, do you know that? Um, if the custom would have been if subsequently he had, he and Sarah had their own child that would supersede Ishmael and that son would be the heir? It, that is true? Yeah, yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in Genesis 17, 13 years God has been silent. Again, do your math, because he's 13 years old. God has not spoken. 13 years have gone by, and God speaks. He speaks forth and says to Abram, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abraham fall, Abram falls on his face. So in Genesis 17, what does God say, I'm going to do? What does he say, I'm going to do? Okay, so we had a little added dimension here, don't we? We see the um, great nation, the many descendants, a repetition of that, but now we, we see this. Kings will come forth, right? What else? Kings will come from him. Hmm? I will give you the land. We have the repetition of the land, which he'd promised back here. He Several times in, in, in Genesis 15, I will give you this land, this piece of real estate here. I'm going to give it to you as an everlasting, to you and your offspring as an everlasting possession. So there's the repetition of the land. Why was the land so important, by the way? Hang on. Anybody know why that land was so important? Why that little piece of real estate was so important? It is a crossroads where everybody traveled through. Everybody. That's what makes that piece of, that's what made that piece of land so important. A lot of it's desert. You know, there's the Judean desert. And if you go there, you see how rocky and sandy and dry it is. There are some really beautiful lush areas part of the year. But it's, it's really, you look at it and you go, it's not that remarkable. What makes it so remarkable is, is, is geograph its geographic placement. That if you're coming up from the north, you travel through there. If you're coming up from Egypt, you travel through there. So anybody and everybody traveling through would go through. 
Israel. That's why all the nations fought over it so much. That's what made it so valuable. Not, not so much what it had to produce, although God does call it a land of flowing with milk and honey. It's more its geographical location. So, yes, what were you going to say? Yes, okay, now he adds in here, you know, first he'd said, you know, you're going to be a great nation. Then he had said one from your own body, your own loin, and now it's specific, isn't it? It's going to be Sarah. So a child through Sarah, and who will it be? This time next year, and who will it be? Isaac. So you and Sarah, as old as you are, you will be 100, she will be 99, way beyond the um, natural ability to conceive and carry a child to term. You will have this promised covenant son, Isaac. And what does he say about Isaac? Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Yeah, they did laugh. Yeah. I can see him laughing. Real, seriously, you've got to be kidding. Who would believe this, right? Who would believe that? I think if I were Sarah, I would cry. <laughs> Just like, oh. One thing to have a grandchild, but I don't want a baby <laughs> all the time. Okay, why, why Isaac? What does he say? Why Isaac and not Ishmael? What's he going to do through Isaac? What does he say? Again, that I will. He does say, I will be their God, which we'll talk about that in a minute, because I, I want to park there for a second. What does that really mean, I will be their God? He is establishing the covenant through Isaac, because we have, we have Ishmael through their own efforts. And then through God, we're going to have Isaac. And he talks about the blessings when, when he says what he's going to do through Isaac. And it's through Isaac that the covenant is going to go through. It's through Isaac that we will eventually have the nation of Israel, not Ishmael. He does bless Ishmael. He makes him a great nation. He does pour out blessings upon him because Abraham says, well, what about my son Ishmael, he loves Ishmael. As far as, for 13 years, as far as Abram's concerned, this was it. This, this is the son. We figured it out, what God wanted us to do, and this is it. So he finds out 13 years later, oops, we made a mistake. We really made a mistake. And it wasn't him, it's going to be Isaac, that the covenant is going through the offspring of Isaac and on through to Israel. So... Um, that, that's, the, that's a lot of the significance there. Well, that is the significance there. So that's who he's going to establish his covenant with. Do you all see, are you beginning to see this progressive revelation that's happening and how God is carrying out what he's going to do? Questions? Yes, Linda. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I, what chapter is that? Yeah. He does marry someone else when Sarah dies and he does have more children. I, he's old. 
Um, Only God could make. He probably married, well, okay, now, Linda, he married someone younger to have those kids. Are you, t- are you with me? There, well, it wasn't a Sarah, a Sarah. Did you hear, Patty? The significant thing here is as far as Isaac was concerned, only God could make that happen. Only God. Now, think about that for a minute. He reveals himself as I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means, what the Hebrew word shad means, and you can read a lot of commentators, and they come up with different things about exactly what that means. But we can all agree on one thing straight from the context. Think about the context. If he's revealing himself, I am God Almighty, this time next year, you're going to have a son through Sarah, who is 99, who will be 99, you'll be 100, and it will be the son of the cub, the promise, Isaac. What does that tell you about what this name, El Shaddai, means? This revelation of God. What is it telling us about God? Because I said one of the things we want to look at in these texts every week is what do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? What does this tell you about God? We can figure this out. He is omnipotent. What do we mean by that? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. What can he do? Yes, anything he wants. But in this particular situation, what can he do? Think with me. He can make an old, barren woman fertile. Who is God? Who is God? Clear back here. He is the creator. How did he create? He just spoke the word and it came into being. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. We always create out of something. We can only create by using something that's already here. So that's something that, you know, if you really think about that, it's beyond our scope. Ex nihilo, I just spoke and it, it came into being. So the God, the cre- God creator who could do that could also supersede nature as he created it and produced this son and a barren woman. I am God Almighty. Watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that you and Sarah never in your million years would have ever dreamed possible. And you, you and Sarah did this out of your own efforts, out of your own fleshly efforts to produce what I promised, and that's not it. That's not what I intended. I'm going to give you this. Do you see what I mean? That tells us what I am the Lord God Almighty El Shaddai means. Amazing. Yes, Tony. We should too. Yeah. Thoughts, questions, comments? Mm hmm.
Ishmael? Ishmael or um, you want to comment on that? Yes. For just adding more confusion yeah. <laughs> to I, the I, fire. I And he does come along, so when it says, in all the nations, in all the families of the earth, you will be blessed, he defines it, Who's, how, it's through Jesus. It's through a seed, not many seed, a seed, one offspring, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the ultimate, that's the, what I want you to see, that's the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant that's been laid here. We talk about God's redemptive plan and story and progressive revelation, what he's doing with Abram. In clear back here in 12 and in 15 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant. Do you all see that? That's why the Abrahamic covenant is so significant. Yeah. Okay. Circumcision. What do you learn about circumcision? Quickly, what do we learn about circumcision? Because it's a sign, we talked about it, it's a sign of the covenant. Done on the eighth day. To whom? All male babies are to be circumcised. How old is Abram when he's circumcised? 99 and Israel's 13. Now, in the culture, circumcision, I put that in there. Circumcision was not, this isn't a new thing. Lots of cultures did it around them. The Egyptians did, but it was generally a rite of, of puberty and done at the age that probably Ishmael was. What's different is God saying, no, at eight days old you will do this. And every male will do it, not only those in your, of your offspring in your household, but anybody you've even bought is going, is going to be circumcised. Um, it's a circumcision in the flesh of the foreskin. And what happens if you don't do it? They're cut off from your people. So it is here, it is here in this chapter, up until now, um, God hasn't put any, other than go, go to the land. He hasn't required anything of Abram, but here he begins to require something of him, because not only does he require circumcision, in the very first verse, what does he require of him? Walk before me and be blameless. Now, what is significant about him saying now, what is significant about this, walk before me and be blameless? 
it's not just the physical act, because what did you learn from those cross-references when you looked at Deuteronomy and you looked at Jeremiah and you looked at Romans? Without us going through each one, what did you learn about circumcision? Is it simply just a physical act? What is it? Because in these verses, he talks about circumcision being what? It is a sign of the covenant, but in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, and also in Romans, what is he telling them to do? Circumcise your heart. Circumcise your heart. It is an outward manifestation of an inward reality is what it is. This is just a, the circumcision is a physical sign of an inward reality, not just the act, the sacrament and the act itself. Does that make sense? Okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yes. But a complicated yes. Okay. That's another study, and I didn't go there. That's okay. What else about circumcision? Why? Why this right? Why this? Why circum? Did you not sit there and go, why circumcision? Did anybody else have that? Yeah, why this? Of, of all the things you could come up with to be a sign, why this one? Hmm? No, you get done. Once it's done, it's done. But why this? And did you come up with any conclusions? They're, they're there if we think about it. Yeah. The Philistines didn't. Because when you go on and read um, the scriptures, you'll hear about the uncircumcised Philistines. The Egyptians did. Other cultures did. So why this sign then? Okay, okay. Patty, did you have something? Okay, thinking about the blood covenant. What else? Yes, Ron. Okay. Okay, Ron says it's the intimacy of it. It's the most intimate thing in a, in a human relationship. And it's coming within the context of God saying, I will be your God. And I will be your offspring's God. So, yes, that is an aspect of it. Other thoughts? What? Okay, let's just connect the dots. What's happening here in, in this, right when he gives the sign of, the, of, the, of this covenant, circumcision, what else happened? Isaac, are y'all following me? Circumcision, the place where it is. This is from where fruitfulness, fecundity, procreation comes. And what am I doing from in this covenant? This sign I'm what am I doing? I'm I'm giving you Isaac. Do you see what do you see what I'm trying to say? It it is it is, first of all, it is, I'm not doing this very well. It is a sign. I want all of you all to do this, and if you don't do it, you're cut off because it's a sign that you're a part of the covenant community. 
And I have, and I eventually I'm going to make a covenant after Abram. The next covenant, big covenant, is going to be with the whole nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, which we'll look at next week. But but he's saying, I I am. What does he say? Let's see. It is a removing of the flesh. I like what Calvin says. Calvin says that this is an image of God's grace. I'd write that down. It's an image of God's grace. What is happening here when he gives Isaac? It's his grace coming forth. Do you all see that? It's his grace. Part of, what is his redemptive story? It's his pouring forth of his grace on undeserving mankind to make a way, to provide a way for you to come out from under the curse and have salvation through Jesus Christ. This sign is, I want you to remember, every time you go to procreate, I want you to remember that you are, number one, part of my people. You are in covenant with me, and I have poured my grace out on you. And Isaac is a physical manifestation of that grace coming forth because by nature, Isaac shouldn't happen. Is some of this starting to make sense? You kind of have to sit with it a little bit and think about it. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Let me read you this quote. That God is abstracting the right from its association from sexual potency and an introduction to puberty. He's reconfiguring it because he's, we're doing it to babies eight days old as a sign of his covenant pledge of fruitfulness and of Israel's dedication to Yahweh. Because it's, it's a sign, it's, it's the significance of the sign, not the act of itself, that is of value. It's a circumcision of the heart, really, exactly. Because in Romans, he says, in Romans, he says, who is a true Jew is not the one that is circumcised. If, if a Gentile follows the law and is uncircumcised, is he not more of a Jew than the one who is circumcised and does not follow the law? And then Paul sums it up with circumcision as a circumcision of the heart. That's why I say it's so significant, the fact that it is a sign. The act itself was only a sign of the greater work that God is doing. And your responsibility, God's covenant is a covenant of grace poured out. He's going to do this no matter what. But this is your covenant responsibility to participate in this sign as a reminder and to walk before me and be blameless. Abram, show this lost and dying world what being in intimate relationship with me looks like. That's what walk before me and be blameless means. You, what is Israel ultimately going to be? A kingdom of priests, a light in the midst of a dark world. They were the messenger of God. God chose them out, not because of anything inherently good about them, but because he loved him and because in his 
I like what Jim says, in his prerogative, I chose Abram. In his prerogative, he chose Isaac. In his prerogative, he chose Israel as his instruments for show the world who I am and what being in relationship is with me. I will be your God. When he says, I will be your God, what, why is that so huge? We just skip right by that and we take it for granted. Why is that so huge? He's coming down to us, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And offering an intimate relationship with us, his presence, his care, his love is given to us each and every moment, every single day, whether you feel it or not, whether you're hearing it or not, even if there's a 13-year silence. He is still there. Okay? I, let's sum up. I asked you the questions. What did you learn about God? What did you learn about man? We've talked about several things about that already in here, but what did you learn about God? What did you learn about man from this passage? He is faithful in covenant keeping. We can take that check to the bank and it will cash. Mm-hmm. Yep. What else, June? Uh huh. It's God's timing. It's God's plan. It's what God will do. Mm-hmm. What else? Did y'all hear? He still works through progressive revelation because if he told us everything he was going to do in our lives, we wouldn't be able to handle it. He gives us for today and this week and this month because that's what we can deal with. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? There's so much here. There's so many pieces here we could talk about. He is so faithful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He gave himself to Abram as as if um, um yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. And he, he still does that to us today. It's not just Abram. He does that to us today through Jesus Christ. Yeah. God is the one that first initiated. Mm-hmm. Did you all read that quote? It's in here. I loved this quote. It was a, it's a, uh, from um, a pastor who's often on Bible.org, and I don't usually like him, but I skimmed and I saw this and I went, wow, is that not amazing? Note the authoritative manner in which God tells Abram what, he's going to, what is going to happen. He repeatedly states, I will and you shall. 
God doesn't dicker or feel Abraham out for his opinion. God announces, God commands, God reveals what he has already determined to do. Abram did not set up this interview and he didn't determine when it would end. God appears without being summoned, tells Abram what he's going to happen, and when he is finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. God's sovereignty means that God, not man, determines the course of human history and works that out in his timetable and way, not ours. I thought that was amazing. God's prerogative, God's sovereignty is just splashed all over these pages. Yes, Stevie. Yes. No, he didn't. No. Right, right. Did you, yeah, did you hear, Bibi? She said, what's amazing is that God didn't come in and say, man, you really messed up back here. He just, he just passes over it and says, no, here, now at the perfect timing, I'm bringing in the one I really promised. He doesn't chastise or scold. We know from the, the scriptural narrative that there's some kind of negative consequences to death. And, you know, that's something we need to stop, but that's something to think about, too, to take home and meditate on. Sometimes when you try to figure out what God is doing and we take it into our own hands rather than be patient about it, it may be a long time before you figure out, uh uh-oh, that was not the right thing to have done. Because it was 13 years before they knew that. This was not it. Yes. uh, After. Mm -hmm. After. Mm -hmm. That's in 16. Okay, we're out of time, so we've got to stop. Lots to think about here. It was really hard as I was going over this to say, what, there's just so much here, just in this one account. That's, part of, that's a lot of what makes this a great chapter, is there is so much here. So take a short break. Uh, now, the problem is, as I was looking back kind of through my Bible, there's a lot of per- perfect verb tenses that they actually read as future which I don't think they're supposed to. So I'm going to actually call my buddy John, who's a Hebrew scholar, and say, hey, help me understand this a little bit more. But there really isn't a, a, a past, present, and a future like we have in English or in the Indo-European languages. Yeah, it's a... Uh, I remember just wanting... I remember crying. I remember in my Hebrew class, I remember thinking, I can never do this. I'm the stupidest man alive. Um, so it is, it is really, really tough. So I don't have the answer. So I'm not even going to try to pretend you have the answer. I'm going to find out from John, and John's going to explain everything to me, and then I'll, I'll remember some things that I probably should remember from grad school, and I'll kind of share that with you next week. Um, so forget the, the future component, except let's just trust the text uh, in terms of its interpretation. Enough translators do this. It's not like you've got all these translators that never do the I wills, and therefore we're, co- you know, we're having some questions. Translations across the board read it as a future tense, and so we need to figure out why and how, but I'll, I'll, I'll do that later. But I, I thought it was very interesting, um, the one-dimensional aspect 
uh, of the covenants that God makes with people. It's very interesting. So you just you kind of need to think about that for a moment. So most of the covenants that I'm in are kind of agreements. Hey, Tammy, you want to get together and have a plan and do something? We need they're in business or you want to get do you want to do that? And Tammy's like, well, what are you talking about, Jim? And I sit down with her and I say, well, here's what I'm thinking about doing. I'm thinking about opening up like a snow cone shop in Lowe's parking lot. And um, I want to know if you want to get involved with me. And she says, well, what, what, what do you expect from me? And I say, well, actually, um, I, I don't have any talent. I don't have any gifts. But I know you have some sons that absolutely love to do that. And so, man, if I, if I give all the money and I kind of front it, will you provide the labor? And Tammy has to look at that and decide and whether or not that's something she wants to do. And then Tammy could say, yes, I would like to do that, or no, I really don't want to do that. But we're kind of going into this situation, and we're equal. Does that make sense? She can say no, I can say no. It's kind of how it works. And so most of the covenants are like that. I mean, I, I looked at Andrea, and I said, hey, let's do something crazy and get married. And she didn't go, well, I have to now. You asked me. I mean, it wasn't like that. It was she could literally look and consider and ponder, is this something that I want? Are you someone that I want? Are you someone that I'm going to want? I mean, we had to walk through all of those things. And so everything, business decisions, relational decisions, there's a little bit of like this, this mutuality that exists between um, like kind of individuals, which is like very different than the covenant that I have with my cat right? My cat's covenant is don't get in my way, right? That's my cat's covenant. Um, I will allow you to exist in the building as long as my wonderful wife chooses to take care of you, but if it ever is up to me, you're going to starve, let's be honest, <laughs> okay? So that's how the covenant relationship works between me and a lesser being, okay? Um, and so it's very interesting that when you begin to look at how the covenants form, because I, I think this is critical for us, because to understand like the covenant relationship kind of puts us in our place in a way. So how does our covenant, is your covenant, because this is where I think we can become deceived actually, into believing that like my relationship with God is a lot like my relationship with Andrea. Yeah, you know, like God came up and he tried to woo me. He gave me this amazing story about how much he loves me and he, he's going to do everything for me and he really cares about me. And I kind of thought, eh, let me weigh my options here, God. And so I kind of considered, you know, what he could give and what he could do for me. And then I just kind of said, yeah, I'll give you a shot. By the way, there's a lot of people I know and they call that conversion. Right? And I want you to think about this. Like, is that not how you understand evangelism? Let me explain to you what God has done for you and just how, how wonderful he is. And, you know, can I pitch it to you in a way that you might want to get on board with this plan? And a lot of our evangelism is almost, a, and I don't mean apologetics as to defend the faith, but like an apology that God really hasn't done what he could do. But if you promise to love him, um, he really is like this kind of jilted lover who could use some few, a few more girlfriends and boyfriends to, to, like, love him and to care about him. I mean, that's kind of how we do it, right? And yet, that doesn't seem to be the way the covenants are described in the Bible. God makes Adam from the ground and then covenants with him. Here's what I'm going to do, Adam. I'm going to give you all of these things. I'm going I'm to do this for you, Adam. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I've done for you, Adam. Here's what I've done for you, Adam. And Adam's response is, thank you. And then there's a moment where Adam and Eve decide, no, thank you. 
and they break the covenant. But again, going back to the idea of the importance of this, does God ever break the covenant? He doesn't break the covenant. By the way, this does mean that when we look at covenants and the idea of covenants, that there is an enforcement piece that is necessary too, though, right? I mean, that's one of the incredible lessons that we always need to remember whenever we look at a covenant in the Bible, is that there is, like, this is what the agreement holds, and should you choose to, well, then this is the other side of that. This is the enforcement of the covenant. And so there's always that element in it that we see in all of the covenants. This is what I give to you. This is what I promise to you. And should you choose to rebel against me, then this becomes the other side of it. And that's why God is covenantally faithful when he removes Israel from the land. God is covenantally faithful when he blots out the temple. He is covenantally faithful in those moments. And we need to remember that. Because only, he only knows how to be covenantally faithful. So, so often we just want to see the one side of it. But if you look at the text, I mean, there, it's, it's all the way through, I mean... So he says in verse 2, I make my covenant between you and me. And then he goes on and says, For I have made you, verse 6, I will make you, verse 7, I will establish, verse 8, I will give, can still verse 8, I will be their God. And then it's, it's kind of interesting, he goes down in verse 10, and this is my covenant, which you shall keep. Like, here, here's my question. Like, where is Abraham, like, agreeing even to things in this thing, right? It's not even like he's weighing it. Interestingly enough, and again, I'd, I'd really be careful taking this too far, but we, we're so involved in this, um, I need the time to think, and I have the right to choose and yet, when you read the biblical texts with, with, um, with, jo with, with Noah or with Adam or with... Hey, Ryan, could you, any way you could turn down the reverb on this? It's kind of driving me crazy. Um, when, you, when you look at them, it seems to be one more, more one-dimensional, doesn't it? I'm going to establish this covenant. And then there is the expectation. And by the way, and here's what you will do. So there is an expectation that comes, but the primary idea... That, that God is putting forth in terms of this covenant is this is what I have done and this is what I have established. And I am genuinely concerned that even as the people of God, we have just forgotten the wonder in that. And we almost feel more like my relationship with God is, is a lot like my relationship with my wife, where we both came in and we looked at our options and I chose God. And I chose Andrea, kind of in the same way. And yet it seems to be a lot deeper than that. Does that make sense? Thoughts? Yeah. And, and, and I, I would just, I would be a little careful. I mean, I, again, what we're trying to learn here 
is far deeper. Going back to what Ryan was teaching last night in the Trinity class, what we end up losing as we try to understand God sometimes, what we ultimately end up losing is the, the gap between the two of us. Ryan was describing last night, and it's known as the creator-created distinction. Okay, the creator-created distinction. And so I love how um, Miroslav Volf puts it. He says that if you were to try to list everything in the universe and you were to list everything, so tables and pens and pencils and people and dogs and cats and clouds and universes, and you, you literally wrote down absolutely everything. And then someone said to you, oh, you forgot something on that list. You need to put God, right? All the things that exist in the universe. He goes, no, that would be on another list. And by the way, it's the only thing on that list. Like it's not the same kind of thing. It is fundamentally a different thing. Because everything in the universe is a contingent thing. It is an ex nihilo, out of nothing thing. And God is not. And that just, I'll never forget it. I mean, I heard him say that. I thought, wow, that's the best way to describe the creator-created distinction. And so you really don't get a lot. Now, now by the way, I think, I think that this is where it can get interesting or confusing as you start going, okay, so do people have a choice and do people, well, I mean, I'm not even trying to go that far down the road. I'm just trying to say that when you really look at the text, do you get the one-sided nature of the covenantal promises? And, and by the way, here's, here's the part that I become overwhelmed with um, is then it becomes truly like a, I remember when Andrea said yes that she would marry me. And it was not in a good time in our relationship. I know that sounds strange. But um, for the record, we were not dating at the time uh, when I asked her to marry me. Some of you know that story. Some of you don't. Uh, I actually was seeing somebody else at the time. And so that's always a little more awkward, too. But uh, I just, I really had my heart set on my incredible wife uh, to be. And I looked at her, and I just so desperately, she would even argue in a, in a, in a in kind of in a needy, inappropriate way, she would tell you nowadays. But, and I remember her saying yes, and I remember just feeling so privileged, so privileged by that, because there was no way for me to make her like me. I mean, just six months earlier, she had broken up with me. And so how do I make her like me? And I just felt so, have you ever been in a relationship, and you just feel helpless? There's nothing you can do. And so, by the way, you know, as a, as a human, I love to, to manipulate the relationships so that the other people feel that way and I don't have to. You know what I'm talking about? I hate being the needy one in a relationship. I like them to be the needy one. I like them to know that they're lucky to have me, not me feeling like I'm lucky to have them. By the way, I think this is what, this is how many of us manage our, I do this a lot in my premarital and marital counseling. It is the jostling back and forth is deeply caused by an insecurity, right, that can sometimes lead to manipulation. And why? It's because, oh, I just hate being the needy one in the relationship. And yet when you look fundamentally at how the covenant relationship between us and God is, this is why you can't help, even though you were describing that, Rachel, I just, I can't help but think about the concept of grace, like the most overwhelming thing with Andrea that I had was, wow, she accepted. Like she chose me, okay? Now put God in that mix. Like he chose me. And I will make a covenant with you. And I will, and all of a sudden I begin to think, wow, like that covenant that, I, that God made with me 
that I entered into. Wow. <laughs> if there was ever a relationship where I am completely left vulnerable and insecure and just, and why does he? And I don't have an answer and I can't, I can't manipulate this relationship. I can't control this relationship. All I can do is receive. Like, and this is where I think we lose sight of the, and so here's what I want you to do. Hey, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean want me to do? Right? Like, by the way, this is one of the major issues that we have with when we, when we preach grace and when we preach covenants wrong, like somehow, and you don't have to do anything. Have you guys heard this about salvation? And you don't have to do anything. You Really? Go back and read all the covenants. And then read into the, all the times where God goes, and here's what you're going to do. Add the word nothing in there and see if they all fall apart. See, it's not that we do nothing. It's how we do things that matters. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Nancy, you raised your hand. I don't want to skip over. Well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. I mean, you kind of said it. I'm just going to say it again. Sure. I, 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 again, I hate saying this. Drew Henderson's so tired of me saying this. The older I get, <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, I've kind of got into that I'm now an old man idea, okay? And so, yeah, but the older I get, the more that I find it to be still, I'm still intrigued by how it happens, that black, black, back, black box of salvation as God moves and I move. I'm still intrigued with some of that. It, 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 it loses a lot of it. I try to answer. Um, I try to answer what the text doesn't seem to answer. Like again, if you take a look at this, it's not like Abraham said. Well, give me give me a moment here. I really need to think about this. Like before I enter into, I got three other gods lined up. I've got appointments this afternoon, so let me meet with you know Asherah and Baal and Moloch, and then and then I'll get back to you, Yahweh. Like he doesn't do that. And so there really seems to be, this is where I, I, I'm not surprised that a John Calvin goes, and therefore God puts it in their hearts to stir them to do this. I get where he's coming from with that, yeah. right? Well, I think what I'm saying is, and I think what you're saying is, if, if, if we can just focus in on the, the gap and the disparities, yeah. then I believe it really causes me to just want to look at the whole thing. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm like you. I still get caught up in the, yeah. how did it all happen? And I will just kind of go back and think about it and read about it. Yep. You know, interesting. No, 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 I don't. I, I agree with you. I agree with you totally. I, I, I like to think, about it, think about it this way. It's that it happened is probably far more important in terms of how it happened. Yeah. Right? That it happened. And by the way, the Bible talks about the how as, as a means of by faith, right? So I'm not, I'm not changing that. But it, it, is, it is by grace through faith that these things happen. So the Bible, the Bible doesn't leave it, yeah, we don't know anything. No, 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 it does. The Bible explains a lot. But, but then we want to ask more questions. But then how does the faith, blah, blah, blah. And I think we, we take it, as Ryan was even challenging us last night, 
Um, this is probably true in a lot of doctrines, right? Whenever we begin to take the how God works and we take it too far, we end up into somewhat of an either foolish or heretical view of things. We explain it too much. You know what I mean? It's like if we actually knew how babies were conceived, you know, if we, ju we just kept digging deeper and deeper, we're just kind of like, okay, you lost me. Right? I mean, it, at some point, it gets to the point where it's no longer this, this magical moment of love and desire. Now it's just bleh, right? It's like, really? Like, that just sounds so boring, right? There's, there truly is something in loss in it. And therefore, it's not that that's not true, but we need to recognize there is something far more, and I don't know if I even want to use the word mystical per se, but there is a, there is a part that defies explanation and I would argue intentionally. There is a part that cannot be uh, kind of like, there is a reducing of it that goes too far that could lead us to getting it wrong. Tony. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely there, isn't it? It's definitely there. Okay, so, so I want you to think about that just how much this text comes to us, and it is such a clear um, description of the I will make, I will make, I will make, I will make. Um, take a look. Just let me, let me show you uh, in your Bibles something that's kind of a, a great verse in the New Testament, and then I want to wrap it up, and I want, to, I want to go somewhere else. But turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23, I love 23 and 24. They're two of my favorite sections of Scripture or, or verses in Scripture. So Paul is ending his book, and he is describing, in essence, you know, we call it sanctification, but it's that, it's that, 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 uh, that ongoing process of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Confirming, by the way, this is going to be a big deal as I move to my second point, um, which is not just the idea that God is the initiator and that God is the, uh, the, the kind and the providing for being of the universe, and we receive this by grace, but there is this ongoingness that exists in us. And so God gives us this sanctifying spirit. God is doing this work in us. And so Paul says this, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So, so often when we talk about the process of sanctification, it's what? It's, man, you really need to be holy. You're not holy. You need to try harder to be holy. Which, by the way, Paul says to put sin to death. So to say we've got no activity in that is false. Again, this is where it gets very, very interesting. We have got a role to do. It appears, though, that our role is to focus on Christ, to think of what Christ has accomplished, to, to ponder, to reflect on um, the work that Christ has already accomplished and then live by the Spirit which already lives within us in that new way of thinking and living. That's kind of how Paul describes it, right? Which means it's really God in us, is it not? Who is, in Ephesians 2.10, who is working in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. That's also Philippians 2.13. So this is God's purpose. So look at this. May God sanctify you 
And then he continues, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. It's like Paul gets in that sense the one-dimensional view of this. And by the way, Paul is the one that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God will sanctify you to the end, and he is faithful and he will do it. Okay, well, wait a second. And this is where we get lazy in our thinking. So whose responsibility is it? And the answer is what? Yes. If, you had, if I had to pick, I choose God. Who sanctifies me? That's God. It's by his spirit. It's by his strength. It's by his call. It's all by grace. So you're talking about I don't have to do anything? No. I mean, I responded, and, you know, where did that come from? And then it gets kind of even more interesting. But notice the one-dimensional covenantal aspect and so let me just say this, like if you're in a time in your, in, your, in your way, in your journey of faith, and you're just not feeling it, because what happens is um, I, I lived in a rather insecure state, Andrew and I were just talking about this a couple nights ago, I, I, I lived in a rather insecure state in our marriage for about 12 years. Where, I mean, honestly, and we, she never, I'm almost out of here. It was never that. It was just, I felt this, you know what I mean? And I just, I did. I just felt this, like I never really got over the fact that there was a time where she really didn't want me and thought she could move on. And so I was, all, I was very insecure in our relationship. And it caused me to be somewhat manipulative, to make sure that I could figure out ways um, that she would love me more on my terms. And that's kind of how I relate. And then I remember... I remember kind of coming to a moment where I realized, wow, she's really not going anywhere. But she always looks at me and goes, you're just an idiot. Like if she just literally looks at me and is like, I don't get you. And I'm just like, hey, honey, I'm just telling you, this is something that is going on inside of me. But I'll tell you, what, what's very interesting is, is that more that I talk with believers, they have a very similar relationship with God. Kind of an insecurity. So I ask you, so how are you doing spiritually? And what I mean by that is, how are you understanding the work that God is doing in your life? And a lot of us are very insecure about it. We, we wish we could know better, right? The great famous question, if Jesus Christ were to come back today, what would you do? Like, what would happen? You nervous? Kind of scared? Kind of looking back? Or are you, are you looking for the one who purchased you to come back and to bring you home? And it sounds kind of cool. I don't know if I'm there yet. Okay. So I want to talk about, in terms of the middle, the middle piece, is I want to talk about the epistemological foundation. Um, epistemology is the study of how we know things. How do we know things? And so what is, in essence, like the, 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 the way in which I can know and um, Lynn kind of alluded to this a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'm going to kind of dance around the idea because uh, I don't believe there is a one-to-one -one correlation between the covenant of circumcision and what we have in terms of the covenant uh, of grace through baptism. Um, but but uh, church fathers and church uh, theologians have always looked at the two, okay? Um, and even in terms of the 400s, when they decided to start christening on the eighth day or roughly thereabouts, was kind of their understanding that the Old Testament Israel had the covenant of circumcision, and then we now have the covenant of baptism. So there was a lot of blendedness that kind of worked through that, that concept. So that's where 
with many of the early church fathers, the idea of christening children kind of came into, came into being. But what, I'm, what, I, what I find interesting is, is the, the epistemological foundation, meaning like, how can I know? Does anybody know what it is in the text? And, and what, the, what the word for it might be? Does anybody know what word I'm kind of playing around on this one? Like, how does Abraham know that this is actually a real deal? The what? Of what? Say it. No, not the animals. What is the sign? Circumcision. So I want you to think about this for a second. So how will I know? Like, I need a sign. God, if you could just give me a sign. I really need a sign. So look at verse 11. So verse 10, this is what's very fascinating. So this covenant that he cuts is what? And he says in verse 10, uh, well, verse 9 says, And God said to Abraham, by the way, now the new name, not Abram, father, but Avrahim, the father of many fathers, right? God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you will keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. So this is the part that's interesting. So it will be a sign, which is the sign is for what purpose? Well, how do we know we're in a covenant relationship? Right? So by the way, have you, have you ever like seen a ring on someone's finger and you just knew there was a covenant relationship? Right? So you see it. So what is this? It's a sign, isn't it? It signals something, doesn't it? Now, is this the covenant? No, it's not the covenant, is it? It's not the covenant. But you, when you see this, okay, you go, oh, that represents something. And so we, we notice how we talk like that, do we not? Well, I saw a ring on their, on their, on their finger, and so you, they're married. We just assume that, right? We saw the sign, and then we go, yeah, that's exactly the way it is. Well, there's got to be a covenant there because there's a ring. And we, we, we talk like that. Like, how do we know that someone's married? Kind of in a normal, without getting all weird, and, well, I need to see a marriage. I mean, honestly, have any of you seen Andrew and I's marriage certificate? How many of you even ask to see that? Right? You don't, even, you don't even think like those things. So here's the part that is very, very interesting, is that God gives not just, hey, I've got this. I think this is, by the way, one of the problems when we begin to speak about a faith, or we begin to speak about a grace, and then we cut off the signs. Right? God doesn't do this. The word sign appears over and 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 over. And God says over and over, and this is how you'll know, 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 and this is how you'll know. And this is how you'll know, and this is how you'll know, and this is how you'll know, and this is how you'll know. And then what do we say? Ah, you really can't know. You're like, you really can't know what's in people's heart. You really can't know what's going on. Like, that is so complicated and, and, and it's difficult. Like, how do we really know what's going on in someone's heart? How do we really know? And we become 
um, kind of the one who, who, I won't say started this, but a lot of it comes back to uh, either Rene Descartes or maybe like Frederick Nietzsche who comes in with this, what is known as a hermeneutic of suspicion where he really kind of doubts and everything is manipulative. But actually God says, no, like if you want to know, like you look for the signs. And the signs become a demonstration of. And, and what I think happens then is when God makes a covenant and we begin to go, well, there really aren't any signs, like we really can't know, then all of a sudden we cut off, interestingly enough, we, we cut off our way of knowing. Because God seems to say, how is Abraham going to know? How are the children of Israel going to know that they're part of the covenant with Abraham? How will they know? By circumcision. It's interesting that, you know, the, you know the famous story about Moses? Wasn't. So Moses is about 80 years old. Okay, so Moses' life is divided up into three sections of 40. You know that, right? So he flees Egypt at about the age of 40. He encounters God at the burning bush at about the age of 80. And then he dies on Mount Nebo at about the age of 120. So 40, 40, 40. Okay? It's at the age of 80 that he is now, God's already selected him. God has already chosen him. And then Moses gets up and he goes to, and his children aren't circumcised. And God about kills him for it. And his wife comes, circumcises the children. So if, if everything is just by faith, What's the big deal about circumcision? And I think this is where we get into some trouble theologically, is because when we fail to recognize that this is the sign that has been given to you, this is the sign that you know who I am. These are the signs by which you will know. When we begin to do that, it's kind of like, um, I, I, I did this actually recently, I married a couple who had been living together for about seven years. And they had kids, and they were going, and now we really want to get married. I went, okay, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm glad for that. So we're going through the marriage whole thing, and then one day she kind of looks at me in our, in our marital counseling, and she just says, can I just be honest, though? This just feels kind of like not what I thought it would feel like. I went, sure it doesn't. Like, you're getting ready to experience, like, your eighth year of marriage, like, as you get married. Like, I remember before, I, I remember the day before I got married, and, I mean, I was absolutely excited. And so was Andrea. I, I don't know if I, I can't even remember the night before our eighth anniversary. Can you remember? Do you remember the night before your eighth anniversary? I can't. Why? Because they're different. So imagine if Andrew and I decided, ah, we're just going to like not really have a covenant ceremony. We're not going to have this covenant relationship. We're just going to kind of assume it. What do we lose? We lose some serious significance, do we not? And by the way, I believe this is how God has even wired us. And so God is constantly saying, hey, by the way, let me show you my presence. And then he uses this same Hebrew word. I will give you a sign. If you ever wonder if I'm with you, you will look out into the night and you will see a pillar of fire and you will see as a sign that I'm with you. And by day, you will see a sign and that sign will be 
The same word is used on Cain. And I'll put a mark. That's what the word that is used in the Genesis scenario. I'll put a mark on you. And everyone that sees you will see the sign, and they will not kill you. And by the way, Noah, I'm going to put a sign into the sky so that you might know. And Moses, when you go in, I'm going to give you a staff. And through this staff, you will produce many signs. And through these signs, the Egyptians will know. And, and, and by the way, and here's what's going to happen. And this is going to happen to the River Nile. And they will, they will see the sign. And the sign will show. And it just it repeats itself over and over and over and over again. God is not one to go. This is very interesting. Do we need to believe in a God without any kind of signs? And the answer is no. We need to believe the signs. We need to believe the signs. Now, one of the problems becomes, what happens if you, like, search for your own signs? Well, now you're like the guy who actually does this in the book of Judges. Like, God, I don't know if I'm the one that's supposed to go out against the Midianites. I need a sign, right? Which is very interesting the Bible doesn't look too kindly on two, as I was doing my study on signs, the two things I found out. God doesn't seem to like people who make him give them signs. He seems to have a bit of a problem with that. I think that's one of the reasons why by the time Gideon was done, it was like just him and a very small group of people against this huge army. God going, hey, you're the one that asked for signs. I'm going to really demonstrate this, right? So it's just going to be a handful of people, and we are going to do this. You're the one that wanted signs. I'm going to make it, right? And so it's very interesting that that works. The other one, which is actually a sign that is found in the book of Isaiah, um, and this is kind of an interesting thing. It sounds really, really noble. God says, ask me for a sign to demonstrate what I will do. And the king says, I will not ask you for a sign. <gasps> He's so humble. No, no, no. He's actually being rebellious. That text is going, I don't need a sign from you. I don't need any kind of sign from you. And God says, I'll give you a sign. Are you ready for this sign? Do you remember what he says? For the virgin will be with child. And she will conceive a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, and his name will be God with us. Speaking not just about the king and his son to be, but ultimately about the king that will come. And so God offers up signs. And this will be a sign to you. You will see a baby kind of laid in a manger. Okay, like, God, thank you for that. Because other than that, I just would think it was a baby. But I, I, I found this sign, and, and you told me about this. And then I went there, and I saw it. And so I'm telling you, like, God is constantly confirming. And this will be a sign to you. And, and by the way, the, the Bible describes this. One of the major signs is, and you will know because you will have the Spirit in you. And it will be a sign to you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit is, a sense, a sign, a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance. So by the way, when we begin to remove like the signs of the Spirit, i.e., it really doesn't matter how you live your life. You live your life any way that you want. You see what we're doing? We're cutting off the signs. Just Again, I, I understand what they're trying to do. I understand what they're trying to protect. But you really can't protect a system of covenantal faithfulness without describing what that covenant faithfulness was supposed to produce. And what God wants us to see and what God wants Abraham to see is, yes, you will be able to look at the, the specific acts of obedience 
and you will know that we are in covenant relationship together as you take seriously what it means, meaning that you will circumcise. And notice what Abraham does in the text. He starts circumcising everybody, all the males, all of his slaves, absolutely everybody. He goes ahead, and everyone gets circumcised. And interestingly enough, and that circumcision then becomes a sign that we are God's covenant people. That's why in the New Testament, and this is where there is some overlap. I don't think it's exact, but there is some overlap. It's very fascinating that the conversation of them saying things like, hey, can I be baptized? Can I, can I receive baptism? Is a, a bit of this, like, I want, like, an initiation. Like, I want to be a part of. And that's why the Bible seems to, not only, but seems to at times, then link up together, um, uh, you know, how, what, what, what must we do to be saved? Repent and believe and be baptized. Each and every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is so often tied with baptism. So often tied with it. That's kind of the natural way that you see it in Romans 6 and 1 Peter and Acts. You, you see this, them being baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon them and that's the sign that this is God's acceptance, right? The sign is what? It's this indwelling of the Spirit. And so one of the problems that we have when we begin to describe a relationship with God that, that demonstrates, and notice how it's just almost now naturally Jesus describes it. Like, how do we know if someone's a believer? Jesus kind of uses this analogy by the fruit of their lives. That's how you know. Like when you walk up to a tree, you look at the fruit, and you know what kind of tree it is. So how do we know if someone's a Christian? We really can't know. Like, we really can't know. The Bible doesn't know of which you speak when you say that. The Bible says we can know. And again, I don't think the Bible's trying to talk about the same epistemological certainty that you're going for. Jesus doesn't go, well, really, only God. He never says that. He says, well, you will know. By what? By the sign, which is what? The fruit of the Spirit particularly our love for one another. Jesus kind of emphasizes that, does he not? And whenever we decide to cut off uh, the signs, no wonder that it creates epistemological confusion. So how can we know we are in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, here's what I, 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 I spent some time thinking about this. Well, there is the sign of the empty tomb, Right? Um, there is the sign, by the way, of my baptism, in which case I was united with him in death, as Paul says in, in Romans 6. Um, there is the sign of the Holy Spirit that now dwells in me. There is the sign of the fruit that now is exhibited in my life. You're saying you're perfect? Oh, if someone says that to me one more time, I'll punch myself in the throat. But do you see all the signs? What do you mean you don't see any signs? This is what God does. He's constantly wanting people to know, you don't have to wonder if you're in a covenant relationship with me. You will know. That's why I get increasingly concerned the older I get. Got to sneak that in for Drew Henderson. I get increasingly concerned when I like to ask questions about, is so-and-so a believer? And people just like ask, like, like I'm asking if I know like the secret entry in their diary four years ago. Is so-and-so a believer? Well, you know, I mean, how do we know um, by looking at their lives? 
But how do we know for, okay, yeah, if you want to get some weird Nietzschean thing on me, I, you lost me. I don't know if I care about that. I'm just asking, can you look at their life and see the fruit of the Spirit being, you know, exhibited? And, and by the way, a big part of that is just a repentant heart. Right? Is it not? How do we know the Holy Spirit is in us? I, I, I taught my boys when they were really, really little. One of the ways that you will know the Spirit is in you is the, 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 the pull of the Spirit as it convicts you of sin and as it puts a desire in you to be obedient to Jesus. And if you don't have any of that, I'd be worried. If you're able to kind of blow through sin without much of a, of, of a nod of it, I mean, I love the statement about Ahab that he did this sinful thing as if it were a light thing. See, the one, I've never been, I, I shared my testimony last week at a, at a women's thing uh, for Diane, and the, the one thing, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and, but sin has never been a light thing to me. And I got, I got nothing to give credit to except for the Holy Spirit. I just, I don't know why I have that. I don't know why from the time I was a little child, I would just, I remember, I don't even remember if I tried smoking, but I remember someone telling my parents I tried smoking. And I cried and cried and cried and cried because maybe I did. And I'm sitting in front of my parents' bed. I was like grade four or five. And I'm like, I don't remember. Maybe I did. If I did, like, what am I going to do? And my parents are now laughing at me. And they're, you know, they're just going, relax, relax. And I'm like, I just don't know if I did. And maybe I'm a terrible idiot. And it's like this kind of welling up within me. So I've kind of had that. And that's why I love to tell people, like, if you're really searching and, and, and kind of going through this, like, look for the signs of the covenant in you. And they exist. The last one that I want to look at, and I've kind of used up too much of my time, so I'm going to have to go through this one a little bit quicker, is I don't know if you thought about this, um, but the, 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 the covenant relationship of circumcision is described as something that will be a sign for how long? Forever. And yet the New Testament says what? Doesn't matter. So I want to say something to you that just might kind of, um, you may not like it, but you're going to have to deal with it, is that sometimes in the Bible, forever doesn't mean forever. Because here I am talking about this sign, and, and then it says, and this covenant shall be a sign between you and me, and it will go on forever and ever. Look at what it says in verse 14. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant? Right? In which case, anyone in the history of the world that does not circumcise their male children on the eighth day um, are not in covenant with God. Right? So is it everlasting or is it not everlasting? Now, what's very, very interesting is, is that to eat fat or blood of an animal, according to Leviticus 3.17, is against the covenant forever. So have any of you ever eaten any fat or kind of like medium rare steak? I'd be careful. Exodus 32.13 actually says that the Israelites will have the land forever. Is that true? No, just say no. Honest, don't, don't get confused. There were many times. God even said, I'll give it to you forever, and I'm going to take it away too. So you just have to deal with that. The Sabbath, according to um, Exodus 31, 17, as well as Leviticus 31, and as well as a number and 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 a number of other texts, the Sabbath is one of the most everlasting covenants that God makes with his people. 
And you will know you're my people, not just through circumcision, but by your observance of the Sabbath. And it'll be an everlasting covenant forever. I mean, I, I read so many of them, I almost became a Seventh-day Adventist, you know? If it wasn't for what Jesus had done, it would have convinced me. Um, the priesthood, according to Exodus chapter 27, 21, is a priesthood that will, that will last forever. But what did the book of Hebrews tell us? That the priesthood ends in Christ, is it not? So what do you do? By the way, in Genesis 49, 26, the hills are everlasting. And there it's just talking about, like, as you look at them, and how, you know how the hills go on forever? How many of you have gone to, like, the hills of, of Colorado and then kept on going, and if you keep on going, you find water? But the hills are an everlasting. The temple, according to 1 Kings 9, 3, is everlasting. 1 Chronicles 28.7 says to Solomon, and I will have an everlasting covenant with you if, I mean if, how do you have an everlasting covenant if? You can't have an everlasting covenant and an if, can you? Yes, you can. Nehemiah 2.3, Nehemiah says to the king, may you be everlasting, meaning, how, do they, how is that interpreted? May you live forever. He didn't. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 8 says that I'm going to, we're going to write down in a book and it will be a book that will last forever. No, it didn't. Isaiah 34.10 says that Edom will burn forever. No, it didn't. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 20, interesting. God says, I broke your bonds forever ago. No, he didn't. It was actually like 400 years earlier. It wasn't forever ago. It was 400 years earlier. And then Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 40. By the way, these aren't all of them. That the shame upon Israel's shepherds will last forever. So what do you do with it? Here's what's interesting. Um, and this is why for those of you that go, so then do we take this covenant and do we make it last forever? Um, sometimes the Hebrew word that is often translated the word forever is sometimes translated long ago. And it actually means in its most strict sense for an ongoing indefinite period of time. For an ongoing indefinite period of time. And then you and I get to do the hard work of sitting down and going, now what is he scribing that's going to last forever? The mountains. Okay, so what is he talking about? A really long time. Well, he's describing like the temple. Yeah, but other texts say that God will destroy the temple. So we don't, we don't get confused, do you? So there's t Edom's going to burn forever. Okay, but we know that that means what? An indefinite period of time. Like, it's not hard. Don't get, don't get all confused with the People do this all the time. Well, literally, the Bible says, okay, literally, the Bible says a lot of stuff that we don't take literally, i.e., there are figures of speech. Okay? So what the Bible actually gives us is very clear. I was amazed at the number of times where it described like God's steadfast love, which would be forever. That God was a forever being. Can you get the difference? How'd you do that? How'd you know that when it talks about God being forever, you knew it really meant forever? And then when it was talking about the hills or the burning of Edom or something like that, you, you just intuitively knew, oh yeah, well that just means an indefinite period of time. And the answer is common sense. No, but truly, I mean, I really want to lift up the biblical principle of common sense. 
which then humbles me going, hey, like I'm not here to tell the Bible what it says. I'm here to learn what the Bible says and what the Bible means. And so we're going to have to kind of unpack that maybe a little bit more as we kind of move down through here. But just in case as you walk through the covenant and you see this sign and then you go, yeah, and it was a covenant forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. God makes it clear, very, very clear. Does he not? Is it elsewhere in the scriptures? That it is not circumcision that matters the most. Okay? And we get the joy of trying to go through that. Okay. Three concepts. Let me pray, and we are done. God, thank you for your kindness to us, which I do not doubt. Thank you for the fact, God, that you give me a way of knowing, um, that you speak and that you reveal. Um, may we be reminded that even though it is an evil and adulterous generation that asks for signs, that you are a God out of grace that gives them. And so protect my heart from always wanting to see more, um, while simultaneously, Father, teaching my heart what to see as truly a sign. And so, God, may we just remember, I guess this takes us all the way back to the beginning, the amazing difference between you and us. Thank you for being the one who establishes the covenant, who sees it through to the end. I thank you, God, for your faithfulness, for it truly is great. As Abraham's descendants by faith, we give you thanks for the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.